You're listening and watching Rashkin Report. This is Yuri Rashkin, and my guest today is head of Litvinenko Fund, Alexander Goldfarb, who's joining us from New York. Alex, welcome back to the program. Hi. Hello. Well, let's begin with impeachment. We have this trial in the Senate. Uh, I think we can agree that impeachment has occurred, but now there's a trial. You're an attorney. You're observing this. You have kind of a different perspective, uh, being able to compare this to how things are done in Russia. But what do you think about this impeachment so far? Well, it's kind of anticlimactic uh, because nothing new has has so far emerged. Everybody expected that there might be a, a small fraction of Republican senators who would vote with Democrats, um, at least on the subject of calling witnesses, but it appears that these hopes would not materialize. And the Senate will acquit uh, Trump. And uh, then the decision, the ultimate uh, decision on where America will go and what will happen with this presidency uh, will take place in November at the general election. So far, so far, the opinion of voters, judging by the polls, is split exactly 50-50, whether Trump should go or whether Trump should stay. Does it really matter whether it's 50-50 or whether it's number of really states um, and, and senators from which states they come from? Because we know that it doesn't, you know, like there's a lot of people in California way more than in uh, Midwest and, and some other states, but they still have two senators. So is it, is it about the country or is it about the way the Senate is created? Well, both. Uh, of course, the opinion of the country affects the situation in in the states, but both with regard to specific individual senators and with regard to the general election, some states have much more uh, weight than the others, and um, particularly because there are a very well-known group of uh, red Republican states and a group of uh, democratic states, and they constitute the bulk of the electoral votes uh, here. But there is a several, uh, some people think six, some people think eight or ten swing states where uh, the outcome of the election uh, may be different. Sometimes they vote Republican, sometimes they vote uh, Democratic. And within those states, there is a, a section of the electorate which is swinging electorate. And it is these people uh, who essentially will decide the outcome of the elections. And with regard to senators from these states, uh, this is important more than senators from, let's say, the state of New York, who are always uh, Democrats. Right. We have a senator from Alaska that has a lot of clout and importance, uh, but Alaska, I mean, few people live there. Um, what do you think is the impression from um, from Kremlin uh, of what is going on here in a sense that, um, I mean, obviously they're pulling for Trump, but does the outcome of this really even matter for a propaganda machine that's going to that's already working and preparing us to vote a certain way in November 2020? Do facts matter? Does reality even matter? 
The reality matters to an extent. Uh, reality matters and myth matters. And as I said, the outcome of the elections depends on a very small group uh, on people in a limited number of states, the swing, so-called swing vo vote in swing states, and the targeted uh, propaganda from Russia or from the candidates uh, directed to these particular uh, voters may um, decide the outcome of the election, even if the uh, bulk of the population votes in a particular way, as we have seen in 2016, when Hillary Clinton won by 3 million votes, but uh, Trump won, won by electoral votes precisely because uh, the voters in these swing states uh, had more weight uh, than the general vote in the country. Right. Alex, you're not known as a, as a flaming liberal. I think you're known as a pretty conservative individual. But I don't at the same time hear you as being a strong supporter of President Trump. So, and, and I think there's an understanding that the Republican Party has kind of become the party of Trump. Um, how do you think that that affects the, the dynamic on the world stage, the role that Republicans have historically played? Um, where, where is this headed now? Well, I would classify myself as a centrist uh, who doesn't have a particular affiliation with either right or left. I'm very negative about Trump because I consider him simply a crook, a dishonest man who, through political manipulation and exploiting fears and, um, and uh, prejudices of a certain segment of the population, some economic, some religious, some uh, uh, racial, um, managed to... Uh, get under his control the um, grassroots levels of uh, Republican Party and pushed the former leadership and establishment of Republicans out uh, of control. So people like uh, the late um, John McCain or the Bushes or uh, Mitt Romney, the former uh, candidate of Republicans, they have no control over the party now, and it has indeed became the party of pro Trump, very conservative, uh, populist, uh, not uh, very enlightened, and um, this is a tragedy of this party. Maybe after Trump it will return back to uh, the traditional uh, Republican kind of mainstream. In the meantime, I should say that Democrats are swinging so much to the left, uh, and uh, this trend is represented by Bernie Sanders and the, let's say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congressman from New Congresswoman from New York, um, who are too left to my taste and uh, whose plans although maybe well-intended, might destroy the economy, which in the end will turn out worse than uh, the city. Yuri? Yep. Okay. So I, will, I, will continue. So I will just reply to, to your point about Ocasio-Cortez. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if we really would have... <clears throat> 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the scene if we didn't have Trump to begin with. Because I think that he was such a um, such a strong effect on the body politic that that there would have to be an anti-Trump, anti just reaction to the strong change of flavor that he went from what we has have historically known as mainstream Republicans to now the party of Trump. And I think that's part of the reason that we have more extreme uh, politicians saying stronger things on the left. Um, as as a result of that. But my question for you next is, Alex, there is certain similarity, it seems, between um, uh, Trump supporters and and Russians in in kind of in terms of more values, uh, because uh, Trump supporters tend to be more conservative and, and Russians tend to be more conservative. Um, is is this are Russians more conservative or are they being told to be more conservative now? Or how does that work? Well, the difference between Trump and the Putin is in details. And uh, the details are that Putin managed to put uh, mass media totally under control. Number one. Number two is that Internet is not as influential in Russia as it is in the United States. So imagine if um, uh, Trump was able to uh, seize control over CNN, ABC, NBC, New York Times, and Washington Post. And the only thing that would have remained would be the conservative media and Fox News and so on. I can assure you that the 50 or 43% of supporters, which he has now, would immediately double. People, essentially, people's uh, views are shaped by mass media. And uh, I wouldn't say that the Russians are much more different than uh, the electorate of Trump. The only only difference is that uh, the Russians of that uh, persuasion are 90 or 95%. And in America, it's only 43%. And that's because, of course, of the state control over the media. Alex, a couple of other things I wanted to ask you. Number one, you're personally familiar familiar with George Soros. You've worked for him in the past. He's now just announced that he's going to set aside a billion dollars for development of democracy efforts worldwide, you know, so that people just don't lose taste for this democracy thing. Um, what do you think could be the effect of this? Back when you worked for him in the 90s, helping, uh, you know, protect and, and make sure that Russian science survives, uh, you were very successful at the time and made very substantial impact. But over time, it seems like those efforts didn't necessarily were sustained because obviously Soros, you know, those efforts were put to an end by Russian government very specifically. And now we can say, was there impact? Wasn't there impact? What do you think about this latest initiative? I mean, George Soros is a pretty successful man, um, but yet he keeps investing into democracy. Is this a losing product? Well, democracy generally appears to be on the retreat, on the retreat in the world. And it's uh, very good that George uh, puts his money into maintaining uh, whatever he can maintain uh, from the democratic outlook in those countries around the world and in the United States. Uh, His role, of course, is a bit exaggerated because he is not only uh, the source of uh, funding, but he's also a symbol. 
for uh, many people. So they, in, including uh, the camp of Trump, who used the uh, demonic figure of Soros, uh, who, to, to you know to scare um, simple folk in the streets. Um, yes, but uh, what can I say? He is a force of good. He's always been a force of good. But his influence as a rich uh, sponsor of liberal projects is much more exaggerated. The, in the West, at least, the public and politicians has, have much more influence than sponsor of, sponsors of this or that particular movement so so we talk about george soros and then he keeps trying to do things but his influence is maybe overstated that's what i think yes he is uh, he's not alone there are many i mean if you look at the american foundations uh, there are you know uh, ford foundation and carnegie and others who work around the world and um, there's the government programs and all of them support democracy but uh, soros was very um, influential in particular regions of the world when he focused at the particular uh, time uh, for example during the orange revolution in ukraine he supported um, the orange camp and so on so soros is very good and very important but his influence is proportional essentially to the amount of money he spends and one billion dollars in the general scheme of things is a tiny fraction of what is being spent on propaganda and on uh, social programs that's interesting so what i'm hearing you say is that uh, all this animosity towards Soros isn't necessarily maybe driven by um, ideology and, and, well, I would say anti-Semitism, uh, because all these other players that you named, they're not specifically Jewish and are not associated with being Jewish, and therefore they're not, you know, they seem to escape some uh, harsh criticism that George Soros has uh, been subjected to over time. But at the same time, what, what I'm hearing you say is that he's actually just getting involved in situations that may create more animosity because he's like sticking his neck out for things and, and therefore he's getting attacked. Is that what no, you're saying? Uh, no, this is not what I'm saying. Right. There's a, a very strong anti-Semitic uh, element in using Soros as a demonic figure in the center of a conspiracy theory. Uh, something akin to uh, the role Rockefellers played in the beginning of the century. Uh, Nazis, for example, and other anti-Semites uh, used this, uh, you know, um, archetypic archetype figure of a Jewish plutocrat who is plotting against the people. And the same thing is happening thing here. What I'm saying is that Soros is doing great work with his money for the benefit of the humankind and for the liberal ideas. But his influence, real influence, is much less than what is attributed to him by the conspiracy theorists who chose him as a demonic symbol of some sort of forces that are controlling the world. He's not controlling the world. 
All right, Alex, one more question before we wrap up, and that is in Russia there is discussion, conversation about changing constitution. Fundamentally, it seems like the goal is to make sure that Vladimir Putin can stay in power for as long as he wants to, but there's some other things being changed, and there's kind of a confusion because on some level people are saying, oh my gosh, this is a constitution, we need to protect it, and on the other hand people are going, well, it hasn't been really respected in like decades, what's what to do. So what are your thoughts about the, this process of, you know, we, the only thing that we hear here in the West, sometimes it seems Putin's government resigned and we just are sitting here piecing it together, trying to figure out what any of this means. So what does this, these big constitutional changes mean to you? Does it mean that Russia is trying to, I don't know, modernize itself as a state? Or do you think that this is Vladimir Putin's um, approach to how to stay in, in power? And uh, is this worth uh, fighting for this this constitution, this document, or is it you know who cares? This is a this is a dictatorship is a dictatorship, and and this is a piece of paper. I think that what's happening with the resignation of the government and uh, changes into constitutions, these are maneuvering of Putin and his regime to somehow stabilize uh, uh, the system of government, system of uh, controlling uh, the situation in anticipation of 2024 when Putin's term ends. How to make sure that he and his clique remains in power. And these are minor changes uh, to what is happening there. They hope that this will help them uh, consolidate their hold on power, uh, but uh, since it is not um, it is not aimed at granting uh, democratic uh, freedoms and liberties, uh, these changes to the Russian people, it won't change much. What will change? Uh, what might change the Russian situation is the economic uh, situation in Russia. The Western sanctions, for sure, and the general policy of the West, at least until Trump, to isolate uh, Russia. And um, the, how much uh, Internet can shape uh, people's views as opposed to the state-controlled uh, traditional mainstream media. Um, Alex, you place a lot of importance on the outside efforts in uh, controlling uh, Russian uh, regimes, at least attempts for influencing worldwide events. But uh, do you feel that this is uh, something that can only occur after Donald Trump leaves office? Or do you think that it is possible to put pressure on Russia while Donald Trump is still in office? No, there is pressure on Russia going on. But he always looks for a way to seemingly defuse it. Well, uh, many people said that uh, there are two kinds of uh, parallel American foreign policy towards right. Russia, which was absolutely obvious uh, in the impeachment hearings where the rank and file diplomats and um, even former uh, members of Trump's administration, such as John Bolton, for example, or former chief of staff Kelly, General Kelly, uh, appeared to pursue a policy towards Russia 
contrary to what Trump has been saying and doing. So there is uh, the policy is uh, unclear, but the pressure continues. But and as we see, John Bolton is now unemployed and uh, yeah. John Kelly is unemployed and Donald Trump still has a job and still makes all these decisions, right? That is true, but there is still Senate and Congress, and with regard to Russia, there is still a consensus that Russia should be contained. Even within the Republican Party, who would support Trump, even his staunchest uh, supporters, such as Senator Lindsey Graham, when it comes to Russia and sanctions, opposes Trump. So it is a, a complex situation. But what I'm saying, if you look at it from the Russian side, uh, Russian standpoint, the um, pressure from the West works and it's painful. And this is uh, what they are feeling. They do not feel some cosmetic uh, changes in the Constitution, which doesn't hasn't been working in the first place. Um, but they feel Western pressure and they feel economic pressure. They feel uh, the um, problems with finding investments or borrowing money. In the West, um, they feel oil prices. That's why they're so happy when oil prices go up. And uh, and so on, and they generally feel that America uh, and the West in general is an existential threat, even if they pursue the most pro-Russian policies because of their system of government and uh, and their role of the society in the government. So even. If Americans did nothing, uh, actually, this is what understood people in the end of World War II who developed the containment uh, doctrine that the, whatever you do, however friendly you are, however you appease the uh, regime, the Soviet regime at the time, it will still feel threatened by the West because it's more efficient and more... Uh, sympathetic um, system than the ones that they have at home. So in that sense, uh, the competition and pressure on Russia is a major threat to that regime. Alex Goldfarb, head of Litvinenko Fund, thank you so much for being on Rashkin Report with us today. And uh, let, let's see where things go. This has been Yuri Rashkin, and uh, thanks for watching. Take care. Thank you.